Hello, friends, and welcome to the Kindred Life Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Marie Bailey, a people gatherer, an author, regenerative farmer, wife, and mom. Thanks for joining me so we can live more bravely, purposefully, and connected to the people and tangible experiences that matter most. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Kindred Life Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Sophia Ang. Sophia is a first-generation Vietnamese-American. She is a sought-after speaker. She is the host of the Call to Farms podcast. I love the name of that. And author of the brand-new, beautiful cookbook, The Nourishing Asian Kitchen. And she's also one of my fellow Tennessee farmers. She recently left a successful Silicon Valley career to start a five-acre permaculture mini farm with her family in East Tennessee in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Oh, my word, Sophia. You're amazing. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Christine, for having me. It's an honor to be here on your show. I'm so glad to have you. Well, we should probably share how we found out about each other. Kind of a fun little story. Um, so you and your husband are now real estate agent and, and mortgage brokers. And we got connected through our dear friends, the Taylors, John and Bree. We used to be close friends with them in Texas. And then how did you guys get connected with them again? So uh, J- Bree reached out to me. She got my information from Sean and Beth Doherty. I think they were doing a festival together and uh, Bree had expressed that they were looking for land in East Tennessee. And so um, Sean and and Beth and I have shared the stage together at an event. And I can't remember cool. exactly which one, but we really connected. And, and I think our story is pretty unique that uh, Beth said, you should reach out to Sophie. Yeah, <laughs> so she put so me awesome. on social media and we connected and, and we met up and now they live like 15 minutes away from us. Oh my gosh. I love it. I can't wait to come see. I know that they've been looking for land forever. So I know that's so special that they found land through you guys. And um, we love East Tennessee. It is so beautiful out there. We love it driving is. through like on the way to the mountains. Are you liking living in that area? We love it. Yeah. We're going on our third year this year. It's gorgeous. Wow. Well, there's so many things I want to dive into, but I have to tell you that I got, so my husband, Stephen is a private chef and a lot of our listeners know that, but I got your book for him for Christmas <laughs> um, and he was so excited. Of course, he loves any kind of cookbook. He has like a million cookbooks, but any with like Asian food, Asian fusion, he's all about it. And then I promptly stole it so I could read the entire thing before we talked, but it is seriously beautiful. Um, this book it makes me so happy because it reminds me so much of my real food journey. And when I first discovered nourishing real food, um, when I first read the book, Nourishing Traditions, which I know inspired your book. So some of the things that stand out, just the family heritage that's woven throughout the book. It's beautiful. The photos. Tell us about the journey to this book. And I'd love to hear kind of your your Vietnamese heritage and that inspired the book. Yeah. So this book started as a dream. It was a passion project of mine 12 years ago when I started looking into real food because my daughter was born and right when she hit six months, it was time to start introducing solid foods for her. And the first Mm -hmm. thing I wanted to make was applesauce because I just didn't 
want to buy the applesauce straight out of the jars in the stores. It just was brown and green, this icky muck. And I remember thinking, <laughs> if I can't eat this myself, then why would I feed it to my daughter? And that was just something that I was like, okay, well then learn how to make applesauce. And it was in these, I think it was like a gifted William Sonoma book that um, a coworker had handed down to me. And in there it had a recipe for applesauce. So it wasn't focused on health or nutrition or anything. It was a simple <laughs> to make applesauce. And it sounds so silly now, but in our culture, we just didn't cook our fruit. And so because of that, I flipped through, looked at the recipe and in these recipes, it said, make sure that you try to source organic apples or organic pears. Cause I was looking at pear sauce too, when you make your baby food, because hmm. your body's, your baby's bodies are not yet developed to process the toxic, harmful chemicals from pesticides and herbicides. So I thought, okay, fine. I will go to Whole Foods and buy my organic apples. But at what point will she reach an age where her body will be able to process the harmful toxins and chemicals? Because I'd never heard about this before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so now fast forward 12 years later, we are now growing our own food. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what a journey. Because because I realized that our bodies were never designed to process these toxic chemicals that mm -hmm. are being sprayed on our food. Yeah. It's so interesting. You even said organic applesauce because that was, it was so funny. That was part of my first journey with learning about real food. Um, I kind of had this idea that organic food was only for people that had a lot of money. Like I was like, I can't afford organic yes. food. Like, no, that's so like, I, that's out of my, my budget. But then- we had some friends that um, really introduced it to us. And I remember that time being like, I will never not use Splenda in my coffee. There's nothing you can do to convince me not to use Splenda. <laughs> and that's the place I was at that point. But then I tasted an organic apple for the first time. And I realized I had never tasted an apple before. <laughs> and it's like life changing. That's right. That's I love, I love that story. And so at this time you are working in Silicon Valley, you're a marketing executive. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's kind of a journey from like, oh my goodness, I'm making organic applesauce for my baby. What happened next in your journey? Like what was the next step? So it was during this time too, that we found Tim was still in the, uh, he was still in the army he, we were stationed in Albuquerque at Kirtland Air Force Base, and there was a family there of eight that lived in the Tejeras Mountains. And I didn't know what homesteading was. I barely found out what that was just a couple of years ago. I didn't realize yeah. there was a term for it. But we went and visited them in the mountains, and I thought that they were just so, again, Tim and I were born and raised in San Francisco, like, you know, San Francisco Bay Area. We we're both born and raised in San Jose, California. So the heart of Silicon Valley. We went to college in New York and in DC. And I went to grad school in Southern California. So all I knew was city life. Mm -hmm. So now here I go and there's this family, children, eight children. They had their own dairy cow. And I remember the wife was super sweet. She had me try raw milk for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I was in my young twenties, you know, still very much like of this um, city life. And I remember looking at Tim with, I can't imagine, I, I know I couldn't hold it back, but just like horror in my eyes. Like, this is how I'm going to go. Like, <laughs> drink this raw it's milk. It's contaminated. <laughs> it's not pasteurized. Yeah. Um, and I remember in my mind, I'm like, this is just, it tastes like grass. It's like all these things in your mind. It's totally psychological. 
But one of the things that she gave me at the end of the trip was she said, you need to check this book out. This is the book that changed my life. And it was that big yellow book called Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon. And, you know, I hung on to it and I, you know, it wasn't until I had my first daughter that I was like, okay, we looked into food. I found food, babe. I had nourishing traditions. And in there, I started looking into like MSG and additives and um, flavor enhancers, like, you know, and, and one day I took out a garbage bag. I went to the refrigerator and one by one, I went through all of our Asian sauces and condiments and flipped it to the back and made sure that if there was anything that was a preservative in there, I tossed it. And one by one, I ended tossing everything out. And my mom came running out. She was screaming like, what are you doing? What are we going to cook with? And I told her, I don't know, but we'll figure it out. And so it's been a decade long journey of recreating our Vietnamese, our Asian dishes, Chinese, you know, we do a lot of Korean um, and Japanese dishes to make them more nourishing traditions inspired using Western A price principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and if any of our listeners are not familiar with nourishing traditions, it's kind of like this um, handbook. I mean, it came out in like the 90s, right? It was like the handbook of healthy living. I remember this, like such a similar experience the first time I saw that book and I was like, what on earth? I had never seen all these fermented foods, but um, yeah, that's really neat. I love that story that you shared in your book um, about when you just threw everything away and you're like, I have no idea what we're doing, but this is not what we're going to be eating. <laughs> this is the story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like those extreme moments though, that get you started that you're like, okay, well, we got to do something now because we just threw away all our food. <laughs> Um, okay. So then you said you got chickens. Is that, was that soon after this time where what led you to like, okay, not only are we going to be eating these nourishing foods, but now we're going to be having a hand in raising chickens, having a, having a garden. Well, well, very much like you, Christine, I grew up thinking that anything organic was for the affluent. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, 12 years ago, I got a lot of black from my family for eating organic. They mocked me for eating organic and going grocery shopping at Whole Foods, which was, you know, the irresponsible thing to do. If you are in the Bay Area and you're Asian, you should be shopping at the higher end Asian grocery store. You should not be buying organic. Wow. Uh, And so so it's we've come a long way. Like I think as a as our culture and as we've talked more and more about organic over the last decade, but this was coming during a time where it wasn't widely accepted for our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, throughout the years, it's been um, coming to the understanding that in order for us to really get closer to our roots and just understand, you know, our our traditions and how to how to cook more nourishing food. It, we just have to start from scratch and start from the beginning. But yeah, no, we didn't start farming until 2017 when Amazon acquired Whole Foods. Okay. And and it was at that moment that I realized I'm okay with working in technology. I'm not okay with technology being in my food. Mm-hmm. And that was when we started digging into the soil. I started growing cilantro and scallions um, just right outside of the windowsill for mom. Mom always said, you know, don't even bother making pho, which is a a broth. 
uh, without scallions and cilantro. So I learned how to succession plant from there. But once I started tasting, similar to your experience Mm -hmm. of like eating an apple, same thing with cilantro. Once I put that into our broth, it just completely changed the flavor profile. And I was hooked. So by 2017, 2018, I started growing our own vegetables. 2020, by the time we hit, we already had a full garden going. But March 16th and 2020 was when California went into complete lockdown Mm -hmm. and curfews. Um, And the only time that I had heard of lockdowns and curfews was when my parents, who are immigrants who fled the fall of Saigon in 1975, Mm -hmm. they had all these stories about how you would get shot if you left your home outside of the approved curfew hours. And so that night, I remember telling Tim, I located a woman who lived in Mill Valley, so uh, north of San Francisco, and she was selling egg-laying hens. Because you have to understand, all of our grocery stores had shut down during this time. Everything had come to a complete halt, and we didn't know when it was going to open again. And we were talking about, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve. Well, that's at least two weeks. I knew that. I knew it could be longer, and I didn't know what that meant. So I said, we've got to get another protein source. Although we have vegetables, we still need protein. And we didn't have a chicken coop. We didn't know how to raise chicks. So the only responsible thing was I needed a source of protein that could regenerate itself, which was eggs. (laughs) (laughs) So we drove up to Mill Valley. We bought three egg-laying hens for $300 each. Oh, my word. That's a thousand dollars almost for three chickens. Yeah, it was insane. And we knew it at the time. Once we were driving at night, we had these three hens in a cardboard box. And I remember driving past the Bay Bridge and telling Tim, I never, ever want our family to worry about feeding our family off of three eggs a day. And, you know, it's been a journey since then, but mm-hmm. after we brought home and they always say like chickens are the gateway animals. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Those chickens are like gold. You probably like, ba- do you like baby them? You're like, these chickens are worth a lot of money. They're worth a lot of money. Oh my um, goodness. We're still paying off the eggs three years later. <laughs> oh my word. Wow. That, yeah. And California really was locked down really hard. I didn't realize like all the grocery stores were closed and to that point. But yeah, I think sometimes it just takes us this um, kind of defining moment where you're like, we're in, you know, and you realize you're in and you're going to be just starting this whole new way of life. And you guys jumped in um, with both feet. And one of the things I love about the story that you're weaving throughout the Nourishing Asian Kitchen is your heritage and your Vietnamese heritage. And so you said you didn't really grow up with like organic food, but you tell the story of how how important it was for your mom and your parents to feed you well and to feed you these like fresh Vietnamese recipes. And so I'd love for you to talk more about that. You know, after they fled Saigon, oh my goodness, just that story alone is just amazing. But, and then, you know, decided to raise their family in a way that they're, they're carrying on their heritage recipes. Like what did that look like? And how did you take that? And, you know, how was that kind of the inspiration for your book? Well, that's all I grew up uh, knowing because when they left Vietnam, they didn't speak any English. And when they Mm. came here, they started from scratch. We didn't have any money. I just remember we had to eat this way. We had to eat nose to tail. We couldn't throw anything away because we couldn't afford to. Mm -hmm. And I remember mom would buy these pasture-raised 
hens and bring them home and I would harvest them. And I remember when I was harvesting them, sometimes I would have a whole sack of eggs, which is a delicacy in our culture. One time I even had a whole egg in there and I thought that was really cool to see that. Yeah, because I didn't realize, I mean, you go to the grocery store and you buy egg cartons and there's eggs in there. I didn't really put together that they came inside a chicken and I just dissected mm-hmm. one. So I think that's where my love for like science too. And I, I went on to get, you know, was pre-med in college because I just grew up this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a lot of that has been because we didn't have any other options. We couldn't throw away the feet. We couldn't throw away the neck and all of that is how, kind of how she grew up too. Um, And so I learned a lot from hands-on experience with mom in the kitchen for the last 40 years. I'm still learning so much from her on the daily, but because I only had, whenever she was home, the only time I had with her was when she was in the kitchen or when she was going to the grocery store. And when she was going to the grocery store, I'd hop in the car to hang out with mom because outside of the time that she was preparing food, she was at work. They had to make, and they, mm-hmm. I think they only made like $2 and 40 cents an hour at the time. Mm. So it was rough. Um, and there was no option and there was nothing that I could really talk about with my friends at school. We fermented a lot of our vegetables because she would buy in bulk and all the things that we are now doing. And I'm feeling like I'm just going back in time and reliving my childhood. Yeah. Um, but, but now my mom and I can actually do it together and I have a much larger appreciation for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but with our heritage, it's just been, how do I continue to have these stories saved within our recipes because mom is now mid seventies and, um, her memories starting to wane. Um, she's a lot slower than she was when she was, you know, 60 and the children, I want to be able to have these recipes passed down to them. And I kept wanting to do this for the last 10 years, Mm. you know, all of the dishes and the dishware that you see in the cookbook are dishes that I had thrifted over the last 10 years for this one day dream that I'm going to write this cookbook with mom. (laughs) Wow. And they're so beautiful. I was actually, there's one page where you have like a grid. Um, I don't know if it's fermented vegetables, but it's like a grid photo of all these different dishes. And I noticed that I was looking at them all because I'm, I love, I love like handmade pottery and like mismatched. Um, But yeah, that's really beautiful. I didn't realize you took all the photos too. Yeah. So I didn't take the photos. The photos were taken by David Payne. Okay. Um, But I was, I've had these images in my, in my head for the last 10 years. When I bought the dishes, I've had them in my head and Tim would say, what, what really did it was he said, I have moved these six boxes all over the country. Are you going to write your cookbook? or donate them because they're all mismatched, right? It's not like something I can take out and serve like a fancy dinner. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I probably would do that, but that's fine. (laughs) But yeah, that's awesome. So he's like, you got, it's time. It's time to write the cookbook. You got to do it. Yeah. He's like, I'm done. You need to just do something with these boxes and we're in a modular home. So everything's so small and tight, but yeah, this is, this was something that I've wanted to do for a long time and didn't, but I'm, I'm glad that we got to that point where, I could say yes to this and, Mm. and do it. But, um, but I've already had the images and the dishes Mm. for 
the recipes for each dish. So when it came time to actually take the photos, I only had three months to write the book, including photos. Wow. So the reason why we moved so fast was because I've already had the recipes. I had the images in my mind. It was just a matter of getting a team together um, so that mom and I were in the co kitchen cooking. So we cooked all of these wow. and then had the room next door to plate and, and for me to produce and direct the photos. Man, I mean, such a huge undertaking. We were talking before we hit record, just I only did 10 recipes in my book and my kitchen was like a total disaster. It is so much to do. And there's a, a, over 100 recipes in here. Over right? 100 recipes. Oh my goodness. You guys, this book is beautiful. If you, even if you're not familiar with Asian food, with, you know, Vietnamese food or Korean food or Chinese food, even if it's not something you normally eat, I feel like your cookbook really makes it so doable and I think I saw you in a video, like maybe on Instagram reels at some point. And didn't you say like, so there was nourishing traditions, but there was a gap that there wasn't a representation of like these heritage Asian foods, right? Can you share a little bit more about that? Right. Well, this was the book that I've been looking for when I found nourishing mm -hmm. traditions. Mm -hmm. When I started cooking nourishing traditions, the recipes and serve them to our family, my mom and dad had a tough time because they were saying we were missing the umami flavors, mm. which, you know, is the savory flavors. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so good. And that traditionally comes with like traditionally fermented soy sauce, fish sauce, right? And, and not of, none of the recipes really in the nourishing traditions offered that. And primarily because nourishing traditions is based off of Dr. Weston A. Price's research. Well, Dr. Weston A. Price traveled to indigenous cultures all around the world, but he didn't go to Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there was a missing gap. And I wish that someone wrote this book because I would have bought it and I would have gifted it to family and friends so that people wouldn't think I was crazy. Mm -hmm. But the timing just never happened. And I guess the opportunity came for me to write it because it was just really frustrating. And this book wasn't supposed to be anything the way that it is today. It was hmm. supposed to be just a passion project that I wrote down, took pictures and got printed at Kinko's in a spiral bound and handed off to my family. It wasn't supposed to be anything that was published and now available worldwide. Wow. So how did you get it published? So I met with the publisher back in October, 2022. And Sally Fallon, who's uh, a friend and mentor of mine, she's obviously the, the author of Nourishing Traditions. I had told her about my idea and mm. telling her that I was just going to write for the family and then I could get it done in three months. And what do you think? And she said, I think it's a fantastic idea. You should reach out to Chelsea Green. And by the way, you won't get it out this Christmas, which was at that point <laughs> in 2022. Uh, you know, she said, you'll get it out by next Christmas, 2023. And lo and behold, it did wow. come out December, 2023. And she was right. And she'll tell you to this day, because every time I see her, she'll walk around and she was like, I told Sophia that she <laughs> couldn't get it done in three months. It'll take her a year. And it did. But really the, the writing time though, did take me three months, mm. <laughs> just the whole publishing part. But yeah. Wow. That's so cool. I love hearing stories like that. You set out to just do something that was a passion for you. I kind of got chills when you were talking about just connecting with your mom in that way and and not wasting time and really seizing the time with her and 
capturing that heritage. And we've done a lot of the same things with Stephen's mom. She grew up in a village of South Korea. And that's so important. Like you have two daughters. We we have two daughters as well, similar ages. And it's so important for us to carry on that heritage with them, you know, like my Italian heritage and Stephen's Korean heritage. So I love that it was born out of that. And you can tell that through the pages. Like you can see that story. I want to talk a little bit about the multi-generational thing because you live with your parents live with you in on your farm, right? Yeah. I think that that is another interesting piece because it's so unique here in America. I feel like it's it's very common in in many Asian countries, but it's not as common here. And so you said in your book, um, I some quotes that I wrote down, you said, I sometimes worry about losing my ancestral heritage and that you're kind of trying to preserve and reclaim that. And I don't know, just a lot of what you said was really honoring to your parents, I think, and honoring to your to your heritage. And another quote you said that I loved, you said, my mom knew all along what every good parent should do. Ensure your loved ones are well fed, no matter what circumstance they're in. Can you talk a little bit about like multi-generational living? What is the importance of that? What are we losing by not having that? What is that like for you? I think I always grew up wanting to honor that. When my parents were busy at work, my grandparents pretty much raised me outside of, you know, coming home from school. I would hang out with um, grandma and grandpa who lived about a block away from our house at the time. And so I always had that multi-generational aspect of growing up as a young child. And my grandpa, I mean, I open up the introduction with what my grandpa said all the time. He would say, eat to live, do not live to eat. And he was a stern man. He was just so difficult. And a lot of the grandchildren were so scared of him. <laughs> um, I wasn't. I I really just, and, and it's, it's just really interesting because there are times, um, I haven't felt it here, but in Lincoln, where I would be out in the garden and I could feel his presence and I can, I can almost feel that I think grandma, grandpa would be proud. I mean, as crazy, and this is in California when everybody thought we were crazy for starting a farm. I just kept feeling this peace when I was out in the garden. I think, I think grandpa would have really liked this. And I remember one day I came in and asked mom, I said, mom, do you think I'm, I'm white, which is grandpa would be okay with what we're doing, with what I'm doing. And she said, actually, he always said to his children, so my aunts and uncles, that wouldn't it be great to have a piece of land one day? Wow. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And this was, you know, that that brought me some peace and comfort to it. But I learned so much from my grandparents, both of them. And when we had kids, actually, before I even got married, when Tim and I were dating, that was one of the first questions I asked him. It was like one of those, you know, deal breaker questions. There may be a day where I take care of my parents and it's going to fall on me, even though I have another sibling. And I said, are you going to be okay with that? And if you're not, then we should just go our separate ways now. I didn't let it get too far. And he said, I would have no problem with that. But, you know, Saying that when you're dating. <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty big. <laughs> saying that when you're married and your parents have health problems and, and you have children and now we find ourselves in the sandwich generation is what we call ourselves. It can be pretty challenging. And, and then add on top of that, we've got farm life and we've got all of the other elements that come into play with animals and failure on the farm and then having a critical Asian mom, you know, why did you yes. do this? I told you yes. that it wasn't going to work. I'm like, I don't know. So, you know, constantly like 
on the offense and the defense. <laughs> That's a lot, you know, and I think that in the time that we're living in, you know, Stephen and I just talked about this on another podcast episode we recorded, but I think our generation is we get really disconnected from past generations. It's not normal now to like, you maybe know your grandparents and that's it. Not many people even know what their great grandparents did or their, their names. Like a lot of people don't even know their great grandparents names or really anything about them, you know, but then in the blue zones, that multi-generational living, and that is such a big part of cultures where people live longer and there's so many challenges, I'm sure, but there's something really beautiful about the kids being able to learn from their grandparents and having all of those um, generations under one roof. Yeah. I, I was going to say that in our, in our culture, it's an honor to be able mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be with your parents and care for them as they're aging. And it's, it's so beautiful to see my parents with the grandchildren mm-hmm. and the grandchildren with my parents and, and how they play along with one another and um, you know, keeping my parents young, but the children are learning so much having that wisdom yes. you know, and that you know. hard work. Like, I mean, you're, you guys are doing such a good job modeling hard work for your kids, but I think that's also being lost in kind of the current generation is like, no one really wants to work hard. Kids maybe aren't growing up around that. When I'm around my, my Korean mother-in-law, I look at her hands and I'm like, oh my goodness, like your hands have done so much in this life. Like they're just mm-hmm. working hands. You know, whenever my in-laws come to visit, it's like she's literally in the kitchen the entire time. You know, mm-hmm. she's cooking, she's fermenting things, she's foraging. I'm like, I didn't even know that was edible. And she's like making yeah. kimchi with it. But um, yeah, I think that's just so cool for your kids to be part of that and to carry that on. And and maybe maybe our children are learning something from that that will change their lives and it'll change the way that they live, like hopefully more connected to their heritage and where their food comes from. Absolutely. Um, that's the dream. And that's why we've changed our lives completely mm-hmm. 180 degrees so that they could have the opportunity to learn to be more connected in a world where, you know, I work in an industry where we are all about connecting the world, but lead such disconnected lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, that's what the kindred life, this whole podcast is about is really connecting people back to those real experiences, hands-on experiences, face-to-face experiences, because so much of that is being stolen right now. And I don't know if you feel this way, but to me, it feels like a fight every single day to preserve that. And I think you use the word like preserve in your book. And I love preserving, reclaiming. I love those words. But there's a work in that, you know, like there's a there's a fight. There's absolutely a fight. And if anything, this cookbook is not just a cookbook. Yeah. (laughs) I call out a few three letter agencies in here. (laughs) I love it. It's very bold. I would love to dive into a little bit more of your life as a homesteader, because I think people, even if they don't have land, can learn so much. You know, I talk a lot about strength on here, digging into a deeper strength, the strength of women, finding this strength that you didn't know you had, or the strength of working together with other people. What are some of the ways you've experienced that since you started your homestead? I've had to really lean into finding and building community. And that was the impetus for us leaving California and finding the community here. Um, One of the biggest things that we learned when we started our homesteading journey in the Bay Area and then in Lincoln, which is north of Sacramento, was realizing that 
we couldn't do it all. And then on top of that, we didn't want to do it all by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to find community. I was trying to build it in California. But a lot of the things that we wanted and the people um, that were around us, what we wanted for them to do too. For example, like I had tried to put together a drive for a bulk dry goods packing event um, from an Azure drop, right? And mm -hmm. got it all together. Everything was organized. And then nobody, people who registered decided not to show up because it was too cold. And, you know, I realized, well, what is that going to mean when things get rough? Who's going to be there for us? Um, and it was just that big eye-opening experience that I said, okay, well, there's no way that we could buy all of the equipment. We can't do all of the things, nor do I want to, because we still work, we still have businesses, we still homeschool, um, and you know, we still serve the community. And so when we came out here, we had to find the right people to build a community with. Meaning, and specifically, I think over the last just couple of years since we've been here has been really nailing down exactly who we want to build with. Mm -hmm. And for me, that means people who have a growth mindset, thinking about abundance and who are real true givers, mm -hmm. because in an age and in this, what we feel like is going to be happening in 2024, you know, where we might have less and we might be able to afford less and less in terms of the dollar amount, what we're going to be able to do for each other is going to be that much more important. But who are the people that are willing to do that without charging you? Mm, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and that is something where, and I almost feel like if you really go back in the way that we might have lived as society, I think about how great, great, our great, great parent, grandparents might've lived. Um, and, and even in Vietnam, where I've talked to my mom about this, you know, how, how did they buy, sell and trade with one another? Cause that's all they, they did. Mom grew up yep. selling fabric in the street markets, right. In Vietnam mm -hmm. and helping my grandma do this. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. But that's truly how we all honor each other's worth. I feel instead of just being consumers and saying, Hey, I will buy this from you for $10. It's, Hey, I have $10 worth of milk. Yeah. What do you have? That's $10 worth or more or less that we could trade and barter with. And how cool is that to be? Because now we're both coming to the table as producers. Yep. Yep. Right. And you We're both not. have something to offer, you know, like it's right. not just it, there is a give and take of living um, this way. And in if you're living on land or you're living in a neighborhood, whatever, that that kind of bartering way of life, I'm the same way. Like I never had experienced that till we moved here. Yeah. And now it's one of the coolest things. Like I have so <laughs> many stories. We trade, we literally trade our kimchi for raw milk like to one yes. of our neighbors, you know, or bread or whatever. Um you know, there's always this give and take, like someone will come over, you know, I remember one time trading essential oils with a neighbor and she brought me flowers and herbs from her garden. Like, it's just so beautiful. It really is a really neat way to live that you're each sharing your own abundance. Like I love that you said abundance. You're sharing what yes. you have in abundance, but not every single person can grow and raise every single thing. And it's maybe not meant to be that way. Right. 
like right now I'm taking a break from my sourdough. I do have the starter that I'm restarting again, Mm -hmm. but right before our call, Tim went to go milking and I told him, oh, remember to bring the two gallons of milk and some Vietnamese yogurt because she were bartering with some sourdough bread from freshly milled grains. But not only that, I'm also sharing a loaf with another family that she's making for, you know, and (laughs) <laughs> and they're going to be providing alfalfa pellets for our dairy cows. So it's like this I beautiful web of being in community with one another. Mm-hmm. And I tell you what, though, I you're right. Like, I did not live this way until we, I might have experienced it from hearing stories, but I never lived this way uh, until we moved out here into the rural country. And now I realize, you know, back in back in the city life, when we were talking about spreadsheets and dividing things by the dollar amount to even, you know, pennies, it's almost offensive when you bring in a spreadsheet or you're talking about splitting something and handing someone cash um, in this place. Like, it's just, it's very interesting. And I get that, of course, you know, as there are new people coming in and and learning what their skills are and we're doing life that way and we're having a Venmo, that's that's fine. But I think the ideal situation would be, hey, like you said, yeah. I've got some kimchi, you've got some raw milk. Mm-hmm. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think there's something so cool. And you like, once again, you're preserving this really cool, like kind of ancient way of living. Um, I love that so much. Um, how did you guys end up? You didn't say how you ended up in East Tennessee, like in this small town at the foothills of the Appalachians, like what on earth? And what is it like for you as Asian Americans, like living in a rural, rural America? Two separate questions and really, really good questions. Uh, first was lots of prayer. I feel like we were really called to come out here. And um, in 2019, I kept feeling I kept hearing rather prepare, 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 and specifically around food and specifically around feeding others. Mm. And so I think that with this, you know, if I, if I, whenever I hit like a challenge here on the homestead or a challenge of being here, I, I just keep remembering, well, you're called here and you are called to prepare for yourself and for others. Um, and Mind you, like this was during 2019 when we were at the height of our career. We had been traveling all over, had no idea that 2020 was going to hit in just a matter of months. Um, And I just couldn't get this like nagging feeling. I couldn't shake it. Um, And so we found this area. I mean, I also, again, the rest of my life is run in spreadsheets. So there's this book by Joel Skousen on strategic relocation. And I did a lot of research on, you know, Mm. specifically rainfall, water access. And that's because being farmers in California and having California potentially shut off all water or having a drought spell, Mm. I knew how important that was, not just for our family, But then I realized that when we started farming, it was important for our garden and important for our animals Mm -hmm. and having access to water was the most important thing. So that's, that's what I was looking for. Number one, and a whole slew of other reasons. Um, um, But that's, that's around homesteading. We are in the homesteading Mecca of the U S I feel, Um, especially in the Appalachian region where, you know, commercial farmers just can't 
exist with the, the mountain ranges that we're in. So you have a lot of small organic farmers mm -hmm. like ourselves who are kind of like finding this perfect little spot and um, trying to do things right and regenerate the soil. I love it. <laughs> but it is, to answer your second part of the question, being Asian Americans here, it is, we're first generation Asian American and first generation farmers. And we're learning as we go. There are not a lot if any other Asians in our community here we are the ones that's bringing a little bit more of that culture into our community from our Vietnamese yogurt from our pho broth um, that we cook for others um, and that we share we barter as well if anybody is sick or just had a new baby in our area we're gifting them um, and blessing them with our pho our nourishing broth um, but we're bringing that and I feel that since going out and speaking out about it, people have been asking us for it. So it's just really nice, but there are some challenges. We don't have access to a lot of the things that we were used to back in the Bay Area where we were genuinely spoiled with the different varieties of not even just places that we could shop at, but restaurants too. Yes. If we just didn't feel like cooking, we could go out somewhere that was clean. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, I remember that in Texas. I mean, there'd be like not just a Vietnamese restaurant, but like an entire shopping mall that was all Vietnamese and like an entire Korean strip mall of every single business is Korean. There's just so many more choices in the city. And I know for my husband, Stephen, that's been a big challenge out here, too. But in the same way as you guys, like we're like, OK, we're going to be the ones that are going to bring these cultural foods to an area that maybe these people have never tried this. And so I love that. I love that you guys are are doing that and you're sharing these really beautiful heritage foods, a lot of the ones that are in your cookbook and that anyone can learn to cook these recipes. I have never seen a cookbook, an Asian cookbook that uses pure um, ingredients like this. And I, I love and appreciate that so much because I... I am concerned about like the additives and in, in the sauces and things. So it's really neat. I'm excited to just cook so many of these recipes, but I think what you're doing is so beautiful and I want to honor your time. So I have like so many more questions, but I want to ask a couple more things. What is one of the absolute hardest things that you've had to overcome since you became a homesteader? One of the biggest challenges or mistakes that you had to overcome and how did you do that? I think the biggest thing for me growing up and even throughout my career has been embracing failure. Um, but when you're talking about failure on the homestead, you're potentially talking about loss of life or loss of a crop. And that is very expensive. And, you know, it's, it's, we had a really deep freeze about two winters ago. We had just brought on our third dairy cow. She just got here about a month prior, and then the temperature dropped to like negative 16 degrees or something. Well, she caught pneumonia. We called a mobile vet out, and she was basically down within 48 hours. We tried everything we could, but I think it was in that moment. I just, I even went on Instagram and shared it because it was so tough. And normally I don't show any of our emotions or mm. failures like this, but I remember just thinking like, I'm really struggling right now with even thinking about continuing on in this journey. And all of the voices that 
I had to deal with when we left California and everyone saying, you're crazy, you shouldn't do this. What do you know about this? All the, all the doubts that I, I had, and I was fighting throughout the years that all came out, came back. And I, I thought maybe I'm not cut out for this. This was really tough. Like that's a thousand pound animal that we just lost. And how could we have prevented it? Um, we didn't lose any other life. And this year, you know, thank God we didn't lose any life as well on the farm. But of course, shortly after that, my mom tells me that um, she says in Vietnamese, she says, and it means failure is the mother of success. Mm -hmm. And I told her, I'm like, how come you didn't tell me this my entire childhood life yeah. and into college? Like never had I heard her say this until I was struggling on the farm. And she says, yeah, that's okay. Failure is the mother of success. You just need to go through it and it'll breed success. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That would have been good to know earlier. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh gosh. I think there are no truer words, especially when you're working with natural elements and so many things you can't control. We had a similar loss once with a pig with one of our heritage hogs and it was devastating. You know, you think about how much you invest your time and care into those animals. And it's such a big loss. You know, you're thinking about money, but you're also thinking of like all that food, you know, like that could have fed so many people. And those times are really, really hard. But I think there comes a point in all of our lives, whatever it is, that we have to choose not to give up. We have to choose to put, you know, keep moving forward. And you guys are doing that. And it's really, really inspiring. I know that your story through this book and through all of your your interviews and conversations are really going to inspire a lot of people. Just to close, like what's what is the deepest hope you have for anybody that picks up your book? Like, what is the deepest hope that you have for people that read this? My biggest hope would be that there is someone out there that would pick up the book and feel inspired to start taking back a little bit of their health um, through cooking from scratch. And my cookbook my dream with the cookbook was to make it accessible for everybody out there who mm -hmm. can enjoy delicious and nourishing food in a very simple way. Um, you know, this is, this was, these are recipes from when I was a busy full-time working mom, still pretty busy full-time working. Yeah. Mom. You're so um, busy. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but you know, but it, I'm not, I'm not special. If, if I can do it, you can do it. And it starts with one recipe at a time. Mm -hmm. And I start from basics, you know, start with sauces. Um, the pho, the chicken pho is the simplest and easiest hack that I have mm -hmm. available for you as a busy individual, a busy mom, a busy family. Even my husband will make the chicken pho because I've been so busy the last couple of weeks. That's the easiest dish for him to make. And I just released a pho masterclass. Ooh. So anybody can take back control and start making nourishing healing broth that you could have any day of the week, any time of the year. Yeah. Oh, I love that. There's so many, like I'm excited about doing, I just bought ground pork so I can do the pork meatballs. I'm so yeah. excited. Um, I told you at the beginning, I'm drinking my coffee with your um, condensed coconut milk recipe. It's so good. Um, I I have my little post-it note on the wild bibimbap recipe. You guys, it is like 
it makes me drool just to look at this picture. It looks so good. So anyway, it is full of amazing things. Um, and I love that it's doable just for anyone. Okay. So at the end of every episode, I usually ask every guest to share one simple joy in their life right now. So I use share these on my solo episodes and it's really a gratitude practice. And I really believe if we focus on those small things that are bringing us joy in our lives and our daily lives, that practice of gratitude really helps us in those harder times. So can you think of one simple joy in your life right now that you'd like to share? Today is moving day for our farmers who are now leasing our 22 acres on our land here. And we just helped them move a bunch of chickens and the chicken tractors before our call that we're recording right now. Mm-hmm. And Tim and I were there. We just, after we dropped everything off for them, we just took a look at the land and really felt a lot of hope for 2024. Amidst all the crazy things that's happening around the world right now, things that are seemingly out of our control, this was the one thing that I know that we could do that brings hope, not just to our family, but other families in our local community. And it, that gives me a lot of joy to know that amidst everything, we're going to be okay. Mm, I love that. That's really beautiful. Thank you so much, Sophia. You are a gift and I'm so grateful for your work in the world and for your bravery just to speak out and use your gifts. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christine, for having me. So good to have you. Uh, Thank you to my listeners for joining us and do not forget to grab a copy of Sophia's book, The Nourishing Asian Kitchen. I will add a link to it in the show notes. You guys will love it. And you can find Sophia online at sprinklewithsoil.com and on Instagram at sprinklewithsoil. All right, friends, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Kindred Life Podcast. I want you to know that your kindred life is worth it, and I'm cheering you on. If you love this episode, please subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review so other people can find this podcast. You can always find me online at christinemariebailey.com, where you can also join my email community, The Kindred Letter, so you don't miss a thing. You'll also get several freebies for signing up for my email list, including the first chapter of my audiobook and some fun free guides. You can also follow along on Instagram at Organic Bean and at The Kindred Farm. See you next time.